This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I aspired to be a photojournalist in my younger days. Beyond making photographs, I was most fascinated by the access that the camera could provide. Doors that normally were closed were opened as a result of the camera and a little bit of curiosity. The best of these photographers leveraged that and bore witness to some of the most important events in our lifetimes. David Hume Kennerly has been doing that for decades. The Pulitzer Prize winning photographer was a war correspondent in Vietnam, a White House photographer during the Ford administration, and has photographed countless iconic moments, both in politics and in sports. He has earned his reputation as a legendary photographer, and I'm honored to share our conversation with you. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I just noted that today was the uh, 50th anniversary of me escaping death during the India-Pakistan War in 1971. The war lasted, David Burnett and I were both there, it lasted less than two weeks, and like 12,000 soldiers on both sides were killed, which doesn't seem like anything these days with the COVID statistics. But uh, on this particular day, and I had it written in a notebook, we were under attack by a Pakistani machine gun position, and I was running with, alongside this Indian soldier, and all of a sudden he dropped, bang, just shot dead. Uh, like that far away from me. And, um, oh, wow. And I, you know, I had a lot of close calls in Vietnam, but I, I, that was profound because you could really see what happened, you know, like, uh, right then and there. And, um, it, it didn't make a picture, but it, it did make for a hair raising experience. And that was even back when I had hair. So, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, today's kind of a big day. And I, I think, when I celebrated my 25th birthday in Saigon, that was huge because I'd had so many close calls up to that point in Vietnam. And every year after that, it's been like a gift for me. And next year, I'll be 75 years old. And if I make it that far, uh, uh, which is only in March, that'll be 50 years. And uh, so that's yeah. pretty crazy. When, when you think about, you know, you know, like like today's anniversary of such a close call and the fact that someone lost their lives that was just next to you. What kind of perspective does that does that give you when you realize that you had the benefit of so many years that someone else didn't have, especially people right. who were friends with you back in Vietnam? Yeah, and this this was a totally random Indian soldier. I mean, I did I that was the first and last time I saw him. You know, there was a lot of action. And it's interesting that you asked that question because I've thought about it. And my first thought was, I'm glad it wasn't me. I mean, I swear it was a selfish thought, uh, but it was real. It was honest. You know, it, it like so many other things, it hasn't really haunted me over the years. I mean, I, I was in Jonestown. I've seen death everywhere. And uh, that's all part of what the career is about. For some reason, I've been able to kind of process that in and out. And uh, unlike a lot of friends and soldiers and other people who've had post-traumatic stress uh, disorders, I've dodged that bullet also. But this, which is no small feat because people who've witnessed that kind of trauma, whether they acknowledge it or not, you know, it becomes a part of their lives. And some people don't process it well. It leads to suicide, drug or alcohol abuse. Yep. I'm doing, have you ever interviewed Carol Guzzi? Uh, I'm going to. I just uh, saw her up in Montana a couple of months ago. 
Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, she's, she told me that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she did. Yeah, she from what she shared with me, she did a lot of you know personal therapy. You know that that was sort of part of. That's right. You know, her. Yeah. She's very open. Her, she's her very little, open about yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, I've acquired her movie rights, and we haven't announced anything, but uh, you heard it here first. And Carol is a old friend of mine, colleague, as you know, has won four Pulitzer Prizes, and there are only five people uh, ever who did that. And Robert Frost and Eugene O'Neill were two of them, and only one other journalist, and she's the only woman. But that's not the movie. The movie is her work and the personal effect that it has taken on her. And and mm. she'd be the first to admit, and she probably told you, that uh, she absorbs everything that she does. And she does more deep dives into dark situations than anybody I know. And I think her story is compelling. Number one, she's the best photographer on the planet. But the other part of it is how she's overcome personal difficulties. And her career has come at great personal cost when it comes to her psychology of her being. Yeah. And plus, she's a compelling person. She's still doing it. She's like a fire person charged out the door when there's an earthquake in Haiti or whatever it is. Needless to say, I really admire her, but I think her story has great value to the millions who've really suffered from issues due to psychological trauma. And she yeah. is so open about it, and she's so willing to talk about it. And to follow her around on one of her assignments, I mean, I think will be a great documentary film. And I'm in discussions with a big production company right now to uh, to do it. Yeah, well, I, I certainly want to talk about you know your time uh, in Vietnam from a certain perspective. But I, I, I you know, I, I was when I was doing my research, trying to understand the sort of the nuances of your your career. Uh, were things I was very interested in because you've been interviewed a lot and you've gone over a lot of your famous and iconic imagery that you did in sports and politics and, and during wartime. And I kind of want to get a, a sort of a greater understanding uh, of you, especially the longevity of your career. One of the things I was wondering about was your, your dad was a traveling salesman. You know, two things that I think are relative to both your career as a photojournalist and his as a, as a salesman is these I, this idea of tenacity and persistence, you know, and not taking no for an answer. Yeah, and I think you, both, you missed a big both roles. Yeah. Well, uh, those are two. But the third one, and I, I, I'm giving a uh, commencement speech at uh, Arizona to their humanities school uh, next this week, actually, uh, on Friday. And I, I was thinking about I was asked a question when I gave a lecture out at University of Missouri Journalism School about a month ago. And one of the students said, what makes you so good? Now, that's a, that's a provocative question because, A, I mean, I kind of think I'm good, but I don't, it's not anything I think about. I mean, it's a weird thing, you know, and mm -hmm. I've been doing it for so long. But I, I came back around to my dad and I, 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 he would sell people things that they didn't think they needed or maybe didn't need <laughs> and then wanted, but it was really the strength of his personality. He was, he listened to people, but he was charming. He was funny. Yeah. Tenacious, certainly. Uh, but I think that was a good part of it. Like how you're not going to buy something from people you don't like. One of the key facets of my career is beginning behind closed doors to photograph politicians in the during the course of reality of what they're doing. Part of how I've done that is I have to sell me to them to let me into their life with a camera, and that's not an easy sell. I mean, some people ego-driven decisions will sure come on in. I'd love you to be here. Most people aren't like that, even if you're a politician and used to being around cameras and all that. So what I learned from my dad was selling, but really it's selling yourself to other people so they will then listen to you and trust you, uh, in my case, to come in and not buy a car or something else. But I'm selling them a, a big idea. 
you know, you you get started, you know, really early. I mean, you were in Vietnam and and doing work for you know the wire services well before you were twenty five. You know, when I think back to my you know my late teens and my early twenties, you know, I didn't know my head from my butt, much less the idea of going out there and you're dealing with people in positions of power, you know, people who have agendas and all those other things. Uh, there's a lot of insecurity that comes into the fore. So, what do you think sort of helped you? you know, overcome, you know, just the the natural insecurities of, of being youthful and being able to be persistent and, and effective as a photojournalist during those early years? Obviously, I've given this some thought because I've written about it. I was a professional photographer when I was 19 years old working on the Oregon Journal. Uh, part of the secret was I knew what I wanted to do early on. One of my middle son is uh, a violin player, and he started playing when he was five years old, and he's an incredible musician. He travels around the world, plays concerts, plays with rock stars, and, and uh, does his own music. But that is a similar case. I mean, he knew early on, probably at five when he started, he didn't know he wanted to be a professional musician, but he was determined to do it. And he, like... And I use this as an example because he came to a crossroads as a senior in high school where he made, he was a starting pitcher on the, on a Santa Monica baseball team, which you could imagine is uh, those are all good. They can play all year long out here. And, um, uh, but he was made a decision that he couldn't play baseball and violin because they both took, an equal amount of time. And so he made it without any pressure from me or uh, Rebecca to just concentrate on violin. He said, I'm never going to be a pro baseball player, but I am going to be a pro violinist. So in a way it was the same with me. I, I coming out of high school, my senior year, I knew I was going to be a professional photographer. I got a scholarship at Portland state college, now university to be the photographer on the paper, the, college newspaper and it was a paid my tuition which i'm sure wasn't very much now that i look back on it certainly not a usc tuition uh, where nick graduated from the thornton school but um about one semester in i had the opportunity to become a, a full-time staff photographer on the oregon journal which in portland which is the big uh, afternoon paper and that was it my college career lasted about a half hour and because I knew <laughs> I wasn't going to learn anything in college that I didn't already know about what I wanted to do or wasn't going to learn on the job, essentially. I really have never looked back from that. I've, I've actually never really applied for a job in my life. I mean, I've been offered stuff. And that sounds weird. And I, it just occurred to me the other day, I'm thinking, oh, did I have a portfolio to take around? Never did that. I went from the Oregon Journal. I went into the Army for six months active duty in 67 for Army Reserves. Uh, came back out, got a job on the Oregonian. And then UPI offered me a job uh, in Los Angeles. So that's really was the start of the national career. And at the same, about three months after I was in L.A., Rich Clarkson called me up and offered me a job on the Topeka Capital Journal, which is one of the best certainly was then a photojournalist newspaper in the country. And a lot of fine people have come out of there. And I'm sitting in this office in Los Angeles thinking, hmm, L.A., Topeka. Thanks, Rich. <laughs> but I'm going to take a pass. <laughs> but anyway, I was, uh, I was honored by the, by the suggestion. And even the White House photographer's job, President Ford offered it to me. I never asked him about it. I never talked to him until the night he became president. So on and on and on. I mean, uh, people have come to me only because they saw my work and wanted me. And I think what, uh, I mean, there's so many good photographers in the world, really. Uh, I don't think what people understand is we get hired for the way we see things. And we all see things differently. And some people see things that and take pictures that appeal to a certain group and others uh, for other people. But that's really what it's all about. It's like, how do you approach your job? How do you see things? And what are you delivering? 
and I've never been a fine art photographer, even though I sell pictures, but not like Ansel Adams, who was a friend and a, somebody I admired so much. I had admired him as much for his photography as for and environmentalism as for his incredible personality. He was so funny and self-effacing. And, and you know, this is how I judge people. I mean, it's like, who are they inside, not superficially? Well, you learn from a lot of people coming up, even though you didn't have a formal education. I think uh, when you're working on newspapers and magazines, it tends to be editors. And I know you had one um, significant editor, uh, Larry DeSantis, that uh, made quite the lasting impression in you. So tell me, what did you what did you learn from from him, and and what was important about that relationship for you? Yes, he's one. And I, when I was talking at Mizu to the journalism students, I, I was really heartened to see that some of the people were studying to be photo editors, photography editors, like any editor. If you're a great writer. Behind every great writer, there's a great editor, somebody pushing them, saying, have you thought about this or that? Like, you need another point of view in your life for everything you do, really. But uh, uh, in, in these cases, photography editors are crucial. And it's kind of a, it's not a dying profession, but it is a profession. And the best ones never wanted to be photographers. They, they, they love looking at photographs, but other people's pictures and they have a way of seeing uh, how you could have done better. Not second-guessing. Second-guessing is just bullshit. You know, like uh, if you mm -hmm. weren't there, you have no idea what you were dealing with. And, and those kind of people can just exit uh, into orbit. But um, people like Larry were passionate about photography, and he was really tough to work for. Uh, he, one particular instance, which you, you may have read it, uh, I'd written it down, came back from an assignment and the pictures were, he was editing the photos. And this is not editing from context. He's just like, you had the role of 35 millimeter black and white film. And he's sitting there with a loop and a cigar hanging out of his mouth, like going through the picture, boom, sees one, clips the edge, you know, that, that was the editing process. He just would never miss a frame. However, if he didn't see a frame he wanted, he'd get like, mad <laughs> so i mean one time we, one time i came back from an assignment and, and he just threw the negatives at me he said you call these pictures you can do better than that these days if you did something like that you'd be called up by the hr department and probably fired as uh, uh, the person who threw the negatives but it's in a way it was like having a vince lombardi coach someone who just pushed you to do better and harshly and if you couldn't take it, then you didn't belong there. And yeah. uh, this is New York UPI, you know, like uh, Macy's and Gimbel's with AP. And every day you could tell how you did because of what pictures got published. And it wasn't like five pictures that's one best. I mean, that's kind of the wire service thing. That's how I was brought up. Also, I remember one other occasion where I had come back and he said, you know, that was it. You didn't do a very good job. And I, I started to tell him how difficult it was. <laughs> That's the last time, the last time that I ever thought of, of, of giving an excuse. He said, you can't print excuses, kid. And he's right. He's right. It was like I forevermore kept my mouth shut. And when people give me excuses, I, I don't, you're not speaking to a friendly audience. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's quite the voice to have in your head when you are, you know, having an assignment and you realize you haven't gotten it yet, you know, that voice whether is he's there your editor or not, forever. 50, 50 plus years later, that editor is in my <laughs> brain. And he was such a great guy. He was a Brooklyn Italian who had this incredible accent. And, and, and like Dirk Halstead was uh, also work for Larry and a lot of really good photographers learned from Larry. And one other thing about Larry. So in 1971, before I set off for Vietnam, the, I covered the Ali Frazier fight and the Ali Frazier, that was my last assignment before leaving for Saigon. And, um, the, and I remember all this so clearly, Ali got knocked down in the 15th round 
And it was March 8th, 1971. We just had the 50th anniversary of that earlier. And the next day, the picture I took of that moment was on the front page of the New York Times, March 9th, 1971. It was my 24th birthday. I was staying up at Halstead's place, uh, up Upper uh, uh, East Side. I mean, what a present, because the New York Times had photographers there and all the wire, everybody was there. It was the biggest, it was the fight of the century. And that was my send off to Vietnam. But then what I didn't know through my year, and, and we have that 50 year anniversary today of India-Pakistan war, close call. Larry DeSantis, through the course of my year, every time he'd see a picture of mine, he's sitting in New York, I'm in Vietnam and Asia. He told me this later that he would see a picture he liked, he'd just throw it, uh, eight by 10 of it in his desk drawer. At the end of the year, he entered those pictures in, into the Pulitzer Prize contest. And the first one was the Ali Frazier knockdown. So when I found out that I won the Pulitzer Prize, I had just turned uh, 25. I was in Saigon. I had no idea it had been entered. Uh, this was like a shock. Uh, I thought we thought it was like a, a joke uh, when they sent me the telex about it. But Larry, it was Larry's Pulitzer. I mean, I took the pictures. He won the prize. But you talk about, you know, soon after or around that time, you had gone to Vietnam. And even that late into the war, there'd been a lot of photojournalists that had died. Just before you got there, Kent Potter, yep, uh, Henri Hewitt, and uh, Larry Barrows died in a helicopter accident. And I think Kent was the one that you actually were replacing. Correct, yeah. And I know that you had been really interested in going to Vietnam to cover the story. But, you know, having it happen so fresh after the passing of those those photojournalists, did that give you any any pause about going there? Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. I mean, to me... Covering the Vietnam War was uh, a metaphor for this kind of thinking was Henry Fonda in Mr. Roberts, where he was an officer on a ship captained by James Cagney. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's a great oh, yeah. film. Classic movie. Yeah, classic, but it's, a, it's about a guy in a job he didn't want to be in and was watching the destroyer sail by their supply ship that was in some backwater harbor and wanting to be on the destroyer going to the war. And so the whole thing was about this tyrannical captain played by Larry DeSantis. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> like he desperately wanted to get to the war, but the captain was keeping him back, Cagney, because uh, he was helping win awards for the, uh, for the captain. But I felt like the circumstances were different, certainly, uh, uh, about all that. But what, what the similarity was that I wanted to go to the war. This is the biggest story of my generation. Four members of my high school class, senior class from West Lynn High in, uh, in Oregon, had been killed in the war up to that point. And it, it was a small class. you know. And, and I felt like I needed to get over there. And as a journalist, as some, to see what was killing everybody, uh, or my friends, certainly, and, and all the thousands of others. But as a, as a news photographer, I needed to do this. And it wasn't just to check off a box on the career path by any means. I, I did not want to be one of those people 30 years later sitting around and said, I could have gone except for some excuse. And mm -hmm. I, I just can't live like that. And, and I distinctly remember Eddie Adams telling me, because this is getting late in the war now, 71. Eddie Adams, who had won the Pulitzer for the Saigon execution, he was a competitor, but I, a friend, said, I don't know why you're doing this. All the good photos have already been taken. <laughs> but that's really funny. Coming from him, you know, easy to say. And then after I won the Pulitzer, I got a, 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 I've kept all this stuff, by the way. The note said, now I understand why you went. <laughs> so he, that was his <laughs> half-assed way of, uh, of congratulating me. But I needed to go. One of the problems I had was I was in the, uh, in the Army Reserves, and I had to get a, a leave of absence from the Army to go to the war, which is a rather ironic twist. But I, I did it. And Frank Johnston, also Washington Post, was in a Marine Reserve unit. 
he had a similar situation to me. I found out not too long ago, really. But I got there and you asked about uh, Potter, whom I was replacing. Larry Burroughs was a personal hero of mine whom I'd never met. His Yankee Pop of 13 story, which was a 1965 cover of a helicopter crew, but it centered on this crew chief uh, and his day in action. It was really one of the best Vietnam stories ever done, period, in, uh, during the war. And it was almost like a Shakespearean play. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning is a happy-go-lucky crew chief getting ready to go on this mission. Uh, the, the second act is the actual mission during which one of their other helicopters uh, got shot down and the two of those people got killed and they had to rescue the, uh, the get the bodies out. And uh, the cover photo is this uh, really dramatic picture of this dead colleague of his in the foreground and he's yelling. But the, the third act was a photo of, um, of the crew chief weeping alone in a room. And I swear to God, I mean, I, I was so profoundly affected by that about the power of photography, not to show you just action or whatever it was, but it, it gave you a complete human picture of what was going on there. And so Burroughs was very influential in my life. And so he was on the chopper. Andre Hewitt, who was the great AP photographer, uh, was on the chopper. And Kemp Potter, whom I was replacing, was on it. And uh, Shimamoto from Newsweek was another one. And they got shot down over Laos. <clears throat> and uh, Potter was supposed to move. He was going to stay in Asia and move up to Bangkok, I think, and cover Asia in general. And I didn't know him either, but I was on my way, parties, having a great time, when word reached us that they'd all been killed. And I I, I was terrified after that. I, I had a kind of a happy-go-lucky attitude about it, and I knew a lot of photographers had been killed. That wasn't the point. But this personalized it. The guy I'm going over to uh, replace had just been killed, and my personal hero had been killed. And it scared the shit out of me. I mean, I and I had a long talk with Bill Sneed about it. And I don't think there was a moment where I really wouldn't have done it. But I, I told him about uh, Sneed had been there initially with uh, UPI, very close friend, Washington Post picture editor. And uh, we talked about it. And at the end of the conversation, I said, well, I, I'm definitely going to do it. But I just want you to know. I'm terrified. <laughs> he said, that's a good thing to be when you go to cover a war. And so um, uh, I went. I went off. You know, there's there's a very steep learning curve when it comes to being a war correspondent, especially during times like that, because it's unlike now where you're embedded and, you know, there's a lot of restrictions. And your first good mistake could be your last one. So surviving there is, has almost little to do with making the photographs but you still have to be there in order to make the photograph. So what do you attribute to, you know, other than, you know, perhaps luck, what do you attribute you being able to, you know, be there for as long as you were and not get injured or killed? You know, who are you, how are you learning the <laughs> lessons that you needed? I don't know. I mean, at dinner last night, we were talking about the day Sarah Jane Moore shot at President Ford in San Francisco. I, I think there, there are many elements. I mean, luck is definitely one of them. If you're on a helicopter and gets shot down, I mean, uh, it's bad luck. I'm not like a, a woo-woo kind of a guy, but I do believe that there is a sixth sense of uh, that could, it's all about self-preservation. And like, don't go down this road. You have a bad, <clears throat> you would call it a uh, six cents, a bad feeling about something. I mean, the whole Vietnam war was a bad feeling on a day-to-day -day basis, <laughs> but, but, but I, that was part of it. It's an acquired ability to just be aware of your surroundings and like, listen to what you're feeling really. And I, I, I'm sure it saved my life a couple of times. And I, Flash forward to President Ford, the St. Francis Hotel. I had this feeling of dread. There's a, it's like a, a feeling of dread. I had a, a friend die, and I knew this person died before I got the phone call. It just, it just came into my head. It was horrible. 
and horrible, particularly because it was true. It wasn't just like some weird moment. But I told the Secret Service guys around Ford, I said, I just have a bad feeling. He's going to walk out of this door. There are a bunch of protesters on the other side of the street. And I have a bad feeling about it. And this is I'm not making this up. I mean, this guy would tell you that that's what I said. So Ford walks out the door and Sarah Jane Moore, the would-be assassin, takes a shot at him. But it wasn't a bad feeling about Ford. Something's going to happen to Ford. It was about me. The bullet went between me and a Secret Service agent. And the reason I know that is because they had a diagram from a photo where everybody was at the moment the shot rang out. I was right in front of the car on the other side from Ford. A Secret Service agent was like right up the corner of the tail end of the car. And they figured the bullet went between us and hit the wall and ricocheted off and hit some poor guy. Fortunately, he wasn't seriously injured, but that they knew where the all that happened. And so that was one reason. Um, and I never took terrible chances. I, I, it turned out, any of them could have turned out by career-ending injuries uh, leading to death. I was always really careful. Uh, and I was always, there was always a, a scared part of it too. I wasn't heroic about, okay, I'm going to, you know, like stand up in the middle of all the shit and take pictures. I, I was not, you know, and, and so um, I think it's a, a sense of self-preservation, a sixth sense, luck, big factor, and not being crazy and taking wild risks. I just, I, I didn't do it in my own mind at the moment. Well, you I know, am. in terms of, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that some young people who just kind of found themselves there, um, might have felt that they had something to prove and that ended up making leading them to make some bad decisions. Do you think that was part of it? I think most of the people I knew were uh, cautious, but you couldn't let it get in the way of, of covering the story. I mean, the whole point was to be there to do, to show what was happening with the war, to show the people fighting it. When I got there, the American involvement was winding down. So I ended up spending a lot of time with uh, Vietnamese troops I had a lot of close calls, but I don't find myself talking about that. And it's really not even a the World War II generation. I, I don't want to talk about it. Well, it's not like that. I just, I don't think about it that much. I mean, if somebody asked me about that, about Jonestown, which is really the worst thing I've ever seen, I could talk about it. I could show pictures uh, without it, like ringing my bell. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I think I'm, I'm lucky but there's nothing off limits for me in my life, a, a professional life, about all those kind of things. I mean, I'll tell you as honestly as I can what what I, my motivation was or as I recall it. Each month, the Charcoal Book Club sends you a new photo monograph that they've carefully selected for their members. But even before you receive it, you can visit the website and enjoy a preview of its contents and learn more about the photographer. This month's book is On the Night That We Leave by Alyssa Resnick. She explores the world of the night from Berlin to St. Petersburg. It focuses on the night and transforms it into its own unique subject, its own, its own special character. It's a fascinating title that challenges you to explore the world after the sun has gone down. This is just one of the quality photo books that are available to you at an affordable price. It's a great way to build your collection of fine photography books. Become a Charcoal Book Club member today and enjoy a great new title every month. It's a flexible service. If you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. You know, you made some lasting friendships with Eric. Niku is a very close friend of yours and, and, yep. other, and other, other people. You know, you've made a lot of friends throughout your career, but, you know, what makes the, the friendships that you made during that time especially important to you? Well, I think anybody who's shared the combat experience would agree 
that that that's a binding uh, uh, experience. You shared something. It doesn't mean that I liked everybody that I was in Vietnam with. In fact, I don't do these reunions because there are people I didn't like over there, and I don't want to have a reunion with somebody I didn't like. You know, and and I don't like. So it's not like everybody you were in Vietnam with is a friend. That's quite mm-hmm. the opposite. But people who you run into who are there. And people like Burnett, who remains a, a dear friend to this day, and Nick Wood, we it's a it's a different plane. I mean, you, you don't even really talk about it. Uh, it's just part of what you shared. I think one of the reasons I got on with President Ford was he was a combat veteran. He saw action in the Pacific. He behaved heroically, and I don't ever recall him talking about that. I I, I and I know. There's a book being written about him right now that's kind of shocking in some ways about because the Richard Norton Smith, who's doing the book, is a great historian, really has just dug up some stuff that will blow your mind because Ford never talked about it, about his heroism, about all he never would have even thought to mention that. But he did it, he went through it. It was it was inside his head. And so one of the ways we connected uh, was having that experience, even though they were 50 years apart, and uh, but no less dramatic. Those kind of relationships are important. Like one reason I think I get along particularly well with military people is I understand what they've gone through. And so it's like, even though I was an army guy in the reserves, that doesn't really count. I mean, I'm not a veteran of Vietnam in the military sense, but the um, I get it. I get the problem. And it one early on when I came back, I, I kind of poo-pooed soldiers or uh, who were suffering from post-traumatic stress like an excuse. I mean, think about it. You return from Vietnam to go work in your dad's auto repair shop or something. I mean, you'll never have an experience like Vietnam, and, and that makes life difficult. In my case, yeah. I'm just going on and doing other stories, other wars, but... I really came around to understanding more about just because I don't feel it doesn't mean these other people aren't. It's not a scam. I mean, I'm sure some people, there are scammers out there in every area. People said they were, were in Vietnam combat and weren't trying to get attention. But I mean, those people uh, I despise. But I think, you know, combat, uh, photography, I, mean, I, I, I guess I could be called a combat photographer, but every time I got into it, I didn't want to be there. So, but it's one of those things where as long as you're here, you might as well take pictures. That's theoretically what you're supposed to be doing. Well, during your time with Ford, where you were uh, the official uh, White House pres- presidential photographer, there's always a lot of discussion about you know um, Nixon's last day and uh, Ford assuming the role of the president, and also when he lost the uh, the election later to, to Carter. Um, but in line with your experience in Vietnam, I know that you helped play a role in terms of Ford's decisions to finally end the war in, in Vietnam. The, the role of presidential photographer is a, is a really rare position to be in, but to actually help to influence uh, a major decision like the end of a war is incredibly unique. Um, tell me about that, that part of your relationship with, with Ford and why he asked for your help in, in sort of making his decision. Yeah, I I didn't really influence him to end the war. The war <laughs> was going to end Good anyway, on. I mean, and, and not well for the United States. I think where I had some influence, and it was a combination of me and my photographs that I took uh, three weeks before the war ended in Vietnam and Cambodia. I went over with uh, General Fred Wyand, who was trying to – he was the Army Chief of Staff, assigned by Ford to see if there was anything that could be done to maybe sue for peace or like have like an a orderly ending to it or even was there anything that South Vietnamese could do. So I went on the trip with him, and I went off on my own. I went up to um, Trang, Cameron Bay, uh, Da Nang had fallen, and, and so I was photographing refugees and in Cambodia, I photographed uh, some pretty dramatic stuff, a woman dying, being comforted by her husband, and, you know, the horrific routine of war, really. Uh, and 
and I had so many Vietnamese friends and they were begging me to try to get their kids out. It was really uh, an emotionally difficult period. But when I got back to the States, I talked to President Ford. I showed him the photos. He wanted my report, really, because I was not a, a, a military guy. I wasn't a politician, certainly. And I showed him the pictures, and he wanted those photographs put up around the White House to get rid of all the colorful photographs of state dinners and happy people, you know, and, and, um, and he said, these pictures should go up in the West Wing, which I thought was, you know, the, I think I was right about it. And uh, he said, people in this building should know what's going on over there. But more important than that, uh, the photos and my description of what was going on, I, I believe played a role in him deciding to open the doors to our country to uh, Vietnamese refugees. And there were a lot of people in the administration who just wanted to cut the losses, get our people out, our people being the final military, and uh, but mainly uh, uh, State Department, others. He said, no, we, we're going to get as many Vietnamese out of there as we can, and we're going to let them come into this country. I, it was his call, but, but, I, but I personalized it, and I personalized it with the photographs. And it, it does show you the power of photography in making you understand what's going on. I mean, this is obviously not a, a new concept. I mean, this has been going on forever. However, to be in the position of inside the White House, inside the inner circle, close to the president, and he wanted to understand it. And he did. To that degree, I, I had an influence. Having had time in Vietnam and getting to see the ultimate consequence of policies made by you know politicians and, and governments, and then you go on to have a career covering a lot of politics, how is having the experience of seeing firsthand the results of some of those decisions, um, how, do you, how did you color the way you you saw Washington and maybe the way that you you chose to cover it even before you started photographing for um, the White House? You know, I, I think every news photographer has a little, kind of a blend of cynicism and optimism, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like the good and the bad, uh, you know, the evil versus uh, the good angels and the bad ones. Having seen 12 presidents now, 11, I photographed Lyndon Johnson at one assignment, so I can't speak to him. Uh, I can speak about his photographer, Yochi Okamoto, who to this day remains the greatest White House photographer ever. He was also the first. He also had a dramatic uh, individual uh, to photograph at Lyndon Johnson and uh, civil rights problems and the Vietnam War and the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. I mean, all that stuff that was going on uh, and civil unrest uh, that Oki was the first person to take you inside the White House, inside the Oval Office, like between Martin Luther King and, and LBJ as they were meeting in the cabinet room, like with the premier of Russia in real pictures. I mean, this is like, those are not grip and grin pictures. And so that was so influential for me and how I did my job ultimately. I just, I, you see people who, uh, for who they really are. I mean, in Ford's case, certainly up closer than most, because I was in the chicken coop for the two and a half years of his presidency in everything. Uh, but Nixon through president I've seen over the years and I've been at the White House uh, with Biden watching the the triple train wreck of the Trump presidency and knowing that decent people have been in that office and he was not one of them it, it just it, it particularly goes back to um, I think about the John McCain statement about I like people who weren't captured Beyond it's beyond imagination for me that some rich guy from New York City who was riding around in a lim daddy's limo uh, while John McCain was being tortured in a North Vietnamese POW prison. I can't 
describe to you the resentment I feel about that. And John McCain was somebody I knew very well. The, I, I was the family's photographer at his funeral at his request. He was a difficult guy, but I admired him so much. And, uh, and I don't think uh, getting shot down is not heroic. Uh, uh, that's bad luck. But you know what it means? It means you were on a mission in enemy territory uh, and you got blown out of the sky and lived to tell about it, essentially, in his case. Heroism is when they offer you a chance to leave your torture, leave your prison and be repatriated to the United States ahead of guys who were shot down ahead of you and saying no. I mean, we throw the hero word around too much these days. And to me, it's uh, like a, if you read any Medal of Honor citation, those are definitions of heroism, for instance. Yeah. And running into a burning building, all that. I mean, it should be a, this is not, you're not a hero for having been in the U.S. military, but how, how you comport yourself, that's why they give medals for that stuff. <laughs> and, and I don't think you're in it for the medals, uh, if you ask me. But these are human traits. And Trump is the opposite of a hero. And he demeans heroes. And from that day, I was off of the platter in terms of uh, having any respect at all for him. And, you know, I'm a photojournalist. I should keep comments to myself, but I'm not, I, I don't think so. Not anymore. I mean, the world we're living in, Liz Cheney, I've uh, known since she was nine years old. She's acting heroically. She's going up against, uh, you know, the big white Republican power trip. She and Adam Kinzinger, really, among only like a handful of, of, of Republicans who are trying to save democracy, and the others are trying to tear it down, and they know what they're doing. And I can't tell you how fearful I am about all of this. I've, I, I've seen it. I've seen the White House surrounded by buses during um, the Vietnam War, during Nixon administration. I've seen like bad shit happening in this country, but not as bad as what we're facing right now, which is way more insidious than uh, just rock throwing protesters and cops battling with them, symbolized by January 6th. Other than that, I have no opinion. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I learned? I mean, in the Ford case, this was not a Jekyll and Hyde character, kind of like Nixon was, if you hear the tapes, like a lot of racist statements really uh, about African-Americans and Jews, and but, but not that he would ever say anything like that publicly, but there were these two guys, you know, in one. Ford, I, I just had such great fortune of, of being able to document a person who was genuinely a good person. He did not have evil in his heart uh, or racist uh, uh, thoughts which is kind of unusual for a guy born in the Midwest of 1913. Uh, but when he played football, everything, he, he never, I never heard him say anything bad about people in general, but certainly not about their ethnicity uh, or their uh, like a macho guy thing. I mean, he was fairly extraordinary in, in, in his genuineness, I guess it would be the way to put it. And just onward. But what I've learned is that everybody, every human being is a different from the next one. And some are better than others. And I've photographed them all. And, and I will say, even having made those comments about the former president uh, whom I despise, I still could photograph him without trying to put that into the mix. And I know I'll be criticized uh, for talking that way about somebody, that's more the, that, that's a worse thing than I ever heard President Ford express about anybody, actually. One time he said, you know, I don't like that guy very much. He was speaking of somebody that worked for him who he fired. <laughs> but that, yeah. and then he's, he looked at me, he said, don't tell anybody I said that. Because the idea that he would ex say something like, I don't like somebody, I mean, that was like the mm. worst thing I ever heard. And this is private. I was with him all the time in private. And he was such a great example for other people, you know, like uh, for me, like I 
you know, we've all trashed people left and right. Uh, that's just nasty human nature. But um, my observations of all these people have been not totally superficial, but like from Ford full-time inside the, the White House and inside his life to, you know, Nixon not really, except for one private occasion where I talked to him, all the way through Biden. But I've been around to see them and how they interact with other people behind the scenes, almost all of them. And they're all different. You know, I like some of them better than others, just like anybody. I was watching a, a video about the assassination of um, uh, Julius Caesar, you know, and, and went into I was there. All I, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> You're hiding those pictures, I'm sure. Um, yeah, yeah. It was but it was really fascinating to see, you know, the reasons why, you know, the number of senators that were directly involved in, in assassinating Caesar and then the other ones who were on the sort of the periphery and how so much was about not just uh, a, a desire for power, but personal slights and all this other stuff. And you realize the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, I can imagine that from your purview, uh, from your position in the White House, that you got to see a lot of that sort of political dance that happened where decisions were being made, not just altruistically, but because of all those various issues. How did well, that? Well, that, that's a good, that's a good Go point. And I, I like, like with Ford, uh, he's the best example for me just because I, you know, I was there, I was a staff, I was around him all the time in a perfect example of a president making a decision based on, in a human way, and a decision where a lot of people could have died was when the ship, the Mayaguez, was uh, uh, captured. It was an American crew, cargo ship. This is after the end of the Vietnam War, not too long after. And they were sailing near Cambodia or Kampuchea, as they renamed it, and were captured by the Khmer Rouge. And, you know, fast forward to a, one decision that he could have made that was offered up as an option was a B-52 strike around Phnom Penh to try to, like, threaten, you know, the regime to let the people go from the ship. But that, that wasn't near where the ship was captured. And uh, basically, Ford said, I'm not going to make innocent Cambodians pay for us losing the Vietnam War. The point being that some advisors wanted to show that America still has strength despite losing Vietnam. And he did not link those two things together. He thought it was wrong to do that, in fact. And he wasn't a person who wanted to put on a show of strength. He said the United States is strong. It's no matter what. You know, the Russians, the only people that matter are the Chinese and the Russians at that point, for the most part. He said, I'm not going to do that. And that, that was like, uh, really, politically, it would have been easier for him to just pull the trigger on the B-52 button. I mean, he could have done that. You'd be surprised how easy it is to do that. It's shocking. Yeah, I probably don't want to know. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think drone strikes are the best example of that. I mean, some guy sitting in Colorado will pop a car full of people and uh, outside of uh, Kandahar, bang, gone. You talk about remote. So you know, even though we we've been talking about you know the initial couple of decades of your career, you've con continued to shoot and you're still doing work to today. How do you think you've improved as a photographer? I'm slower. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be 75 years old in about 10 weeks. You know, it's all in your head. I, I think um, as long as I can do it, and I, I obviously love doing it. I've improved just because of experience. I mean, I, I, I can I know what I'm looking at usually, and I can assess it quicker. I have a much better idea of what I want out of it. But the, the key thing is I haven't lost my enthusiasm for it. And I'm not doing as much as I did. And the COVID period obviously slowed everybody down to a, a dead stop or a crawl. And I average quarter of a million miles a year on airplanes. And I know it because I get my statements. And so 
United is uh, the, the recipient of much of that travel, <laughs> travel income. Uh, but I thought, because the last time I got on an airplane, uh, well, I've been on it since, but February 28th, uh, 2020, I flew back from um, Salt Lake City where I'd given a talk. And I didn't get on an airplane for a year and three months. I thought it was going to drive me crazy. But it was kind of the opposite. The fact I didn't have to run out to the airport at all during that period, I, I, I quickly got over it. And it was surprising to me because I've just had so much a part of my life traveling. I've traveled millions and millions of miles, millions, maybe 10 million. I don't know how many. But I still have the desire. I still have the enthusiasm. I believe in the business. I particularly like other people's pictures. I'm glad that uh, there are photographers out doing, telling the story, showing, uh, going to the places that nobody wants to go to show them things they don't want to see. I mean, that's bottom line what we do. Mm -hmm. Harkening back to the uh, quote that Eddie Adams uh, said about you know, all the good pictures have already been made. You know, you've been covering politics. He, he, was, uh, for, he was, yeah. No, you've been covering politics for over 50 years as a photographer and hearkening back to that quote, well, all the good pictures that have already been made. And, you know, and you've made some iconic I imagery. You know, when you go out there and shoot, besides sort of telling the story, how do you sort of challenge yourself as a photographer so that you're, that, so that you keep things interesting for yourself photographically? in terms of, you know, the creating of the images? Because I'm innately curious. And, and I think if you look at the photographer's mental toolkit, that's probably number one. If you're not curious about what's going on, uh, and that means not just the action, but like, why would somebody do this? Like, can I show that? It's hard to photograph in somebody's head what they're thinking, obviously, but you can definitely see the end results. Curious, you know, you take a right turn instead of a left turn, you're going to have a whole other story. I, I, I'm always wondering what's going on and like, why are they doing this or how could I show what they're doing? I'll never get over that. I've been one of the things I'm going to do, I don't know when this is going to be on, but uh, I'm going to go back for the uh, to D.C. for the one-year anniversary of January 6th. I'm going to hang out with Liz Cheney because I think she's important. So I have the same enthusiasm for doing that now as I would have 25 years ago. It's about the story, certainly. And so what are the things that are affecting our, our country? I mean, that's always kind of at the bottom of why I do what I do. And, and, and that goes from the beginning of my career. These things are affecting all of us. And I want to show you what they are. And I feel the same way about it today. Well, I look forward to seeing those images. You know, you're working for the wire surfaces. Uh, it was also during a time where ma major magazines like, you know, Time, Life, Newsweek, the nature of news publications has changed a lot, especially over the last you know couple of decades. Uh, in terms of outlets for your work now, how is, how is it different and how do you negotiate it? Oh, it's totally different. Um, you still have Time Magazine, obviously, hard copies. And there's nothing like seeing your pictures in print, like where you can pick them up and look at them. I do not get thrilled by having my pictures online, uh, even though they are, and and that's you get a bigger audience and all that. But you lose the tactile feel of photography with internet, you know, like, uh, uh, however... I've responded well to the digital era. I started it's for 20 years now. I've been shooting digital. So I was an old dog that learned new digital tricks. What people tend to forget or not realize, it's still the same eye behind the lens. Whatever the delivery is, whether it's film or digital, doesn't matter. I mean, you're still in there taking the pictures. And that hasn't changed. But... I really miss like the life, certainly. I was one of the last photographers hired by them. I think Burnett and I, I just work around it. I mean, this we are where we're, we are. And so I, I, I just deal with it. I deal with it. And I don't like it that much, but uh, it's what we have to do. 
And I know you worked with your wife in terms of, you know, preserving and, and uh, organizing your archive. Can you briefly talk to us about that? Uh, yes, Rebecca, Rebecca Kennerly, without whom <laughs> my archive would still be sitting on a shelf somewhere. Um, we worked for the last 10 years on putting it together and organizing it. And one of the key elements was that, except for the UPI and during the Ford White House, for the most part, I own everything I've shot. And I did that like where you have to work without a safety net as a freelancer or as a contract photographer for Newsweek or Time or whatever. But it was always clear in the contracts that I own the rights to them after they publish them. And so for that reason, they had greater value, particularly considering the content of what I created over the years. And, and I, I haven't been able to add that up, but it took that archive was like, took millions of dollars to produce uh, on a day by day basis over 50 plus years, well, like trips to the Middle East and uh, whatever it was, you know, like to go on an assignment somewhere and high level assignments, like big history assignments. And so we had a lot of people interested in the archive, various Ivy League schools, uh, West Coast schools. Uh, um, but the University of Arizona Center for Creative Photography was the, the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare race. They just kept plugging away. Rebecca Semp, Becky Semp, who's uh, uh, one of the key people at the Center for Creative Photography, kept pursuing it. And this is the home of Ansel Adams' archive and Eugene Smith's archive and Edward West's archive and Avedon, on and on. And uh, uh, it, it, it's the best place. And Ansel was a friend. It was created in 1975. And so then Robert Robbins, Dr. Robert Robbins, the president of Arizona, stepped in and essentially made it happen. He said, we need this archive at University of Arizona. And that's where it is. And it was a big deal. And uh, they bought it. I didn't donate it. And as I mentioned, I'm going to give a commencement address to the humanities school there next week. I'm very involved with the uh, curriculum over there. And now that hopefully we'll get out of the COVID thing to a degree <laughs> sometime in the next 30 years. But um, so I, they bought it for the pictures and for the history. And if you look at all the sort of interdisciplinary ways that the material is used, it was like the perfect place. I mean, they, they appreciate it. They understand it. And I'm around to talk about it. And so right up there with one of the most exciting things that ever happened to me. And thanks to Rebecca, uh, uh, who made it happen, pushed it figured out how to make it happen. I mean, she was incredible. And it was a team effort on that one. That's great. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who that one photographer be and why? I have three recommendations. Carol Guzzi, Carol Guzzi, and Carol Guzzi. <laughs> she is. I agree in all three. <laughs> yeah, and she's uh, to me the best photographer on the planet. She is the most caring photographer I've ever met. Her work is extraordinary, and uh, and she can talk about not only her work but uh, the effect that it's had on her. And I would predict it could be one of the best interviews you ever get. I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting down with her, but I'm really pleased to have a chance to finally sit down and talk with you. It was a real, real pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoy the work that we're doing here at The Candid Frame, we can always do with your financial support. Each episode requires time, effort, and resources, and your donations help us to make the show possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. 
If you've been thinking about doing this for a while, but you've never gotten around to doing it, why not take the time to do it today? It would be a great help. Thank you so much for your continued support. Thanks to David for joining us. Explore his work by visiting Kennerly.com. And if you're a fan of the work we do, there are different ways for you to support the show. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, share a favorite episode on your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Tracy Malib for her recent contribution. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.